0: Nice. Hello, I'm Mike Delvecchio. I'm a member of the Elder Board, and I will be starting this program here in just a second. There we go. Okay, I have the privilege of bringing you God's Word today, or sharing God's words with you today. Um, before I do that, though, um, let's. I just wanted to mention uh, giving. If you have an interest in giving to um, victims of the um, Harvey Hurricane, um, I went to the PCA site, we're, we're a church um, Presbyterian church in America if you didn't know that that's the denomination we're involved with and they actually have a all set up already where you can give to that, there's over a, there's about a half dozen PCA churches in the Houston area and so all you have to do is go to the MNA it's Mission in North America, that's their national mission agency, you go to the MNA Disaster Response just put it in your search engine and then you just click, there'll be a big button there it says Disaster Updates and you just click on it and it's really easy um, I did it from my phone. So, Anyway, so um, if, if that is something the Lord's leading you to do, um, which hopefully by the end of the sermon it will be. Uh, we'll see. So. All right. Very good. Um, so open your Bibles or your device, and we'll read. It will be up here on the screen as well. Um, but we're finishing up our, our series in Philippians, and we're in Philippians chapter 4, the end of Philippians. And the last section, verses 10 through 23. So Philippians 4, uh, verse 10 to 23. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the word, Jesus Christ. We want to praise your name for him. We want to thank you, Father, for all that, he, all that you have done in and through him. I pray, Father, that you'll be now with me. Um, I pray that you will guide my tongue and guide my mind, that I may clearly present your word. Pray for all those present here today that your spirit will be at work, um, opening their ears and may hear truly from your word and turn to Jesus Christ. We thank you now and pray in his name. Amen. All right, so we're finishing up today. And if you remember the theme, I should test everybody. The theme of, that we've been using is um, joy no matter what. Joy no matter what. And I hope you have seen that is joy no matter what because of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see, we hope to see that in the passage today. And I hope you think I'm a broken record, okay? I hope you say, well, so-and-so said that, and -and so-and-so said that. I will try and make that evident to you, and I can, but I hope you just get that sense anyway. I want to start, though, by just going by verse by verse, because Paul does kind of move in and out in this passage. Let's just start, and we'll just start in verse 10 here. Um, Paul's referring to this gift that Epaphroditus had brought. And this is actually the first direct thanks for it um, in this letter. And that may seem not right to you, but that apparently is how the letters went back in the day, Paul's day, as they would thank at the end. And so this is sort of typical, but this is the first actual thanks for it. He also is using a term here, um, this revived, another term too, that means blossom again. Uh, It's like a flower in springtime that has blossomed after, you know, being uh, quiescent in winter. He's also acknowledging their love and friendship has always been there. This is nothing new, but just needed an opportunity to show itself. We don't know why, um, what had delayed that or what not, but there's this new opportunity, and he realizes they've loved him all along. Verse 11, uh, again, he's, he's referring to the gift. He um, it says, you know, that he needs a... Uh, he's referring to the gift here, and... Um, and he's basically, in, not that I'm in need, Oops, excuse me. and as I was worried here, my, this computer's old, so I have a backup plan here called paper, um, and it is freaking out there, so sorry, we will be going through, you won't, there's nothing you really need to see, so, oh, huh, that's what you happen when you get grandpa's old computer. So, all right, but I have it all here on paper, so, all right. I have a backup plan. All right, so in verse 11, verse 11, he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, Paul's quickly emphasizing that his joy in regards to their gift is not due to his being in terrible need of hunger or cold or whatever. He is a prisoner, mind you, and so he clearly can't take, a, can't take care of his own needs that well. Um, and then he talks about this thing in contentment. So contentment no matter what. In Paul's day, there was actually quite a bit of teaching on contentment. you probably heard of something called being stoic. Well, that came around a little bit before Paul. Um, but the heart of that contentment, the heart of that teaching, is that it was basically a self-sufficiency. It came from within. You didn't let circumstances around you drive you or not. Um, then in verse 12, um, he talks about bringing, you know, being low and then abound. And this is, he's referring to the circumstances of verse 11. Um, And the brought low uh, here, I've known how to be brought low, is the same word that he used of Jesus in Philippians 2.8. And there the term is translated humbled. Um, Now, certainly Paul is thinking of that as he's um, bringing this to our attention. But Jesus experienced the ultimate in being brought low because he came from the highest place. Um, He came from from, from the Father, and he came to earth. And Tim Bathurst when he was preaching on this, pointed out that Jesus submitted to the humility of, of babiness. His mom had to change his diapers. He had to learn the language just as all other children had to. Um, then we, um, Paul goes on to use in multiple words to comparing need versus abundance. And then facing plenty versus hunger is referring to food. Paul's making it clear overall as he goes through all these comparisons that true contentment, regardless of one's circumstances, is actually hard to find. And then the end here, he talks about, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret. First, learned, I think, is important for us to remember, and that you're not born with it. This isn't talking about um, someone's um, uh, demeanor. Um, It's not talking about a temperament or personality. It's something you have to learn from outside you. And then the secret, the secret. What does the secret mean? When Paul uses that term secret and uses it in other places uh, in his writings, what he's meaning, and this is a quote from a commentator, this is a truth which, had it not been for special divine revelation, would not have been made known. But when he uses it, it has been made known. So this secret is now known by the indwelling spirit. So then in verse 13, a verse that you've all heard before, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a well-known verse. It's frequently taken out of context, as you might imagine. And let me just read how one commentator puts it, and I just want you to know I agree with this commentator, and it will be the basis of what we discuss later when we talk about the application. So, quote, here's a much-used sentence from Paul that is often taken out of context and thus abused. While everything seems to be all-embracing, it's often applied to one's activities, especially those that are personally demanding, athletics, learning to drive, and the like. In context, it refers primarily to living in want or plenty. Paul finds Christ sufficient in times of bounty as well in times of need. Thus, Rather than being a Christianized version of the Stoic ideal, this passage points out the absolute Christ-centeredness of Paul's whole life. He is a man in Christ. As such, he takes what Christ brings. If it means plenty, he's a man in Christ, and that alone. If it means want, he's still a man in Christ, end quote. So in Christ, remember that term, and we'll get back to it later. And for all... But that's somewhat young, look around me and if you see, see if there's something that says in Christ or in Jesus around me and we'll see if you saw that or not in a few minutes. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul now goes back to the appreciation for the Philippians' gift. And When he talks about share in my trouble or afflictions, um, the gift indicated that they had a common cause. With the, the Philippians had, were in common cause with Paul's affliction. They truly were sharing in it. They're living out the partnership that he spoke of in Philippians 1, 5. Now in verses 15 and 16, so Then you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul notes the numerous times that the Philippians have helped Paul. First, they did it quite soon after he left there. He went from Philippi to Thessalonica. Um, but secondly, there's a, in this there's a, you have to note there's a special relationship that Paul had with the Philippian church. With all other churches, it wasn't the same thing. He, t- he typically, when he went to a city to plant a church, he would apply his trade, which was tent making. And Unless you've heard the term being a tent maker, right? You, you're a missionary, but you actually work in a trade. Well, that's where that comes from. But not in Philippi. Paul didn't do his trade in Philippi. He allowed the Philippians to care for his material needs. So again, Paul's referring to the special relationship that he has with them and and allowing them to give to him. And that's an important thing uh, to consider is um, something my dad said, um, Pasquale. Um, So he would say, you know, sometimes you need to allow yourself to be in need of sorts. I know if you're like me, you're a good, you know, pioneer, you can do it all, of course. And the last thing you want is to be the person in need. And and my dad many times would say, allow yourself to be in need. And this is what Paul did with the Philippians in this special relationship. He allowed them to meet his needs. So verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Beginning part, as in verse 11, Paul does not want his appreciation to be misunderstood. He seems to be going into pains for that. And this is particularly important about Paul as a minister. And Paul is quite careful about material giving overall and the work of the gospel. He does not want the accusation that he is some sort of traveling hustler to have any merit. And then Paul says also he's not concerned for the gift, but for the giver. Paul uses a business language here. Basically, the gift will, be, um, will bear interest applied to their bank account. And the thought is that right giving always enriches the giver. Verse 18... I receive full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We talked about well supplied and then the gifts. We don't know exactly what the gifts were. It was probably money, somewhat, but there was probably some food. In Second T- Timothy, he wanted to have some parchments and a cloak. So we don't know what you know the gifts actually were. It was probably an array of things. And basically, I think it's helpful to think about that. And when we think of giving, to sort of think outside the box. It's not just money. Um, think about Epaphroditus. He had to give all kinds of time. The guy, it, you didn't, he didn't hop on a plane to go from Philippi to where Paul was in prison. It took him many, many weeks. So, again, this is a gift of time. And um, I have an, an example. Um, Cindy and I took Luke to um, Longwood Gardens the other day. And so we got there. We're getting ready to go and stuff. And Luke has a potty accident and so, you know, I'm taking him back to the car and getting his clothes and all this stuff. And, you know, getting a little frustrated, as you might imagine. And um, so I, then it occurred to me about my sermon. So, oh, just have an application of your own sermon. And I said, what does what Luke need at this time? Well, what he needed was my patience. He needed my compassion and patience. So, again, think outside the box when we think of are you giving and when you give. At the end of, the, at the end of this verse, Paul changes his metaphor or his description of the gifts, and he compares it to the Old Testament offerings. Now, again, there's a lot in there that we don't get in our sort of state and understand these things. But when he says it like this, such a comparison would show the costliness, would show the costliness of the gift. Additionally, Paul is giving the highest praise possible as he's acknowledging the proper spirit of the gift. And that it comes from a spirit, an attitude of faith, love, and gratitude. The attitude of faith, love, and gratitude. And what amazed me the most from this passage is that look at the effect it has on God, okay? It pleases God. We can actually have an effect on God, the creator of the universe, the almighty. And we see that, how he allows us, he, he he, he attaches us to himself to a way that we can actually please him. So verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to riches in Christ Jesus. According to riches in Christ Jesus. Um, and, uh, you know, this, I this is the only verse we really needed for this whole um, message. I could have spent the whole time on it, um, but we didn't do that. Um, but just a few points. First, my God. And the intimacy is here is clear. He talks about my God. We see here the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer that is found in John seventeen three. John seventeen three. and this is Jesus. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's Jesus' summary of what our salvation is all about. An intimate relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next he talks about every need, and this is kind of obvious, um, but we still must tell ourselves it's every need, not every want. And do remember, what we think is a need in this country (laughs) is a want in most parts of the world. So again, remember that, every need, not every want. And lastly, in Christ. Here the body of the letter closes. And it ends as it should, in Christ Jesus. The whole letter is focused on Jesus and the benefits that we have in Christ. Then in verse 20, To our our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, having given thanks to the Philippians and then recognizing the source of all good things, being God, he cannot contain himself. He must praise God. As one commentator put it, When one thinks on God's riches lavished on us in Christ Jesus, What else is there to do but to praise and to worship? And then at the very end, verses 21-23, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So briefly, just as Paul kept it, not not wanting to take away from the praise of God that Paul would want his readers to remember, it is all about Jesus Christ. To quote another commentator, the whole letter, from beginning to end and everywhere in between, focuses on Christ. To miss the central focus on Christ would be to miss the letter altogether. Okay, now for application. Two things jumped out. I'm sure they jumped out to you too: um, contentment and giving. Contentment and giving, and we're going—you're going to see them kind of merge together. So just keep that. Oh, it's back. Okay. Well, goodbye. Oh, no, it's still spinning. Ah, you're dead. Okay. All right. You can turn that off if you want or whatever. Um, So two applications jumped out to me, or should I just kill it? Maybe this will help. There we go. Okay. So, contentment. We all want it. Does anybody in this room not want to be content? If you are, I believe you're lying. If you say you're probably lying. But we all want it. But it's elusive. It's hard to get. Um, So what is it? Well, it's hard to say exactly what it is. It's quite easy to know when you don't have it. Um, Agitated, on edge, unhappy. So what is it? Is it being having leisure? Happiness, all things going your way. Not according to Paul. He was contented in prison. He was contented in all circumstances. So when we say contentment today, I want your mind to kind of envelop several things. First, joy no matter what. As you can think back from the very first sermon that Pastor John gave us and others, um, that's, what we've been, that's been the theme, joy no matter what. Also, I want you to consider the thought that Bob Hames brought out, the pressure is off and the quest is on. In other words, it's life with a purpose. And also it encompasses what Dave Miller spoke of last week, deep, deep peace. So we want to flesh this contentment out, but keep those things in mind as we do that. So why don't we first take some examples of people who you would think would be content. Alright? Especially in our society. How about a a movie star, uh, an an actress, a singer, uh, has lots of money probably and a bunch of other stuff. And let's go with Madonna. She's Fairly, I've never thought she was beautiful. Some people say she would be beautiful, but clearly she's talented. There's no question. Um, she's done very well. This is a quote from Madonna. Let's see if you think she's content. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Doesn't sound like a contented person to me. All right, now this next guy has got to be contented. Does anybody know who Tom Brady is? Is it five Super Bowls now? All right, well, this is a quote after his third Super Bowl. This is a famous quote. You may have seen it. It's on YouTube. Just put Tom Brady quote, and you'll come up. All right, so they're talking to Tom Brady after his third Super Bowl, and um, this is what He says, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? He wasn't even content after his third Super Bowl victory, and I suspect he's not after five. Think of all the stars, politicians, or lottery winners who seem to have it all, but then they crash somehow. They're not content. Okay, so fame, accomplishments, money, they do not lead to lasting deep commitment. There must be another way. Even in Paul's day, I was saying there's much discussion regarding contentment, and you've heard the term stoic before. The idea that they had was that you live above your circumstances and that you cannot base contentment on anything outside of yourself. It must be from within. Does that sound familiar to you at all? I have a, <laughs> there he is in the back. Are you behaving back there, Luke? Um, I have a 21 year old that we call a, a 6 foot 2 inch toddler, and so I still see kids' shows all the time. Does anybody here um, know that what the theme song of Arthur is, the show? Believe in yourself. That's the place to start. And my daughters, if they were here, I don't see. I don't know where Grace went. They'll tell you how many times I, that comes on and I turn and say, that's not the place to start. Okay. All right. This thinking is very much what drives our culture today. The idea that it's all about the individual, all about your looking within yourself yourself. And finding there who you truly are and that living that out will lead to a fulfilled and contented life. But think about it. What kind of foundation for our lives is, is, is built on ourselves? Are, are we that solid? Are we that unchanging? Of course not. It is a foundation built on sand. A foundation built on sand. And again, was that was what Paul was talking about? Absolutely not. First, Paul said it was something you got to learn. It takes effort to learn things, okay? Um, So it's a learned thing. It's not something you're born with. It's not innate to you. And then second, remember that it was a secret. And as we mentioned, Paul's referring to something that can only be known by God revealing it, and he's done so by the work of the Holy Spirit. So what has been revealed that we must learn? It's not found by looking within ourselves, and yet it's not something exterior to our circumstances that we can seek to change or accomplish. It's something entirely different entirely different. There's only one way to be content. Being in Christ. In Christ. Being in Christ. So what does that mean? Well, lots of things. One author listed a dozen things. But we don't have two-hour sermons any longer, so I've only picked a couple of things. And um, it's first emphasized right above my head. Did anybody see it? In Jesus. Now, that's a shortened, uh, a shortened vision statement. Let me read you our, tr- our, our full vision statement. Our vision is to be a thriving family in the city where the broken from all nations are made alive. See, we left out the alive. Al- alive and whole, finding hope and purpose in Jesus, in Jesus, in Christ. So I'm going to take off of that a few things. So number one, the first thing that being in Jesus means is that your biggest problem is solved. Your biggest problem is solved. Ephesians 2, 1 says, apart from Christ, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. Not a good state to be in. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. See, there's a God out there. All humans have rebelled against God. That's what sin is. We've committed treason. We've committed treason. The penalty for treason, as you might imagine, is death. Death. Penalty for treason is death. This God is perfectly just, so we're all under a death sentence. But this God is perfectly loving as well. He has known love from all eternity, and he wants to spread this love. So he, he makes a way to justly, to justly bring these rebels into a loving relationship with him. And the way he does it is by he sent his own son to die in the rebel's place. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember, Jesus did not become sinful. God put our sin upon him. God put our sin upon him. So so in Jesus' death, the penalty for sin is paid. The penalty for sin is paid. But look at the end of the verse. It says that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only does God take our sin and all the wrong we've done, But then God bestows on us all the good Jesus did and all the standing that he deserves. So, before we go further, though, I want you to consider, has your biggest problem been solved? Are you separated from God? How can you become in Christ? Let me give you two verses that Jesus said. The first is John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he said, something fairly well known, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You can become in Christ simply by recognizing your sin, your treason against God, and then accepting that Jesus paid your penalty. As Jesus put it, repent and believe the gospel. You can do this moment, this very moment. Speak to God and he will hear if you call out to But there's more to being in Christ. God adopts us. God adopts us. We were once rebels, haters of God, and now we become his children. Galatians 3.26. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. But there's more. And here we see the truth of the idea that we should be who we were meant to be. But the big question is whom do we look to figure this out? Do we look within ourselves or do we look somewhere else? And here we see that peace in Christ is a thinking peace. This contentment is a thinking contentment. The peace that our society offers is a non-thinking peace. The very first thing you have to do if you want to have peace according to our society is don't think about the big stuff. Don't think about that you have just came here out of nothing if you believe that. You don't think. Don't think about the big questions. But in Christ, we can think about the big question. So, what's the big question? And let's look outside ourselves for it. Why do we exist? Why were you made? Why are we here? That's the big question. A precise answer to this question is found in the catechism of this church. The very first question, question one. What is the chief end of man? Which means, why are we here? Okay. Answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or you can put the same question that Pastor John posed at the first sermon of this series. I don't know if you had this idea or not, but I put it together. Do you have a life that has a plot and is full of joy? Do you have a life that has a plot and is full of joy? And the answer he gave uh, in pursuit of this life was that our calling as seen in Philippians is knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. So there you go. You can have true lasting contentment, joy no matter what, and the pressure off and the quest is on. We could end there. But I do have some practical ideas. I'm kind of a practical guy of those that you know me. Um, Not a formula, not a formula, mind you. These are practical points. Things that I've found that have helped me um, at times to know contentment. To have peace and joy no matter what. And to live a life with a purpose or a quest. Of course, there's three things. This is a Presbyterian church. So I do have three points. First, I think this is in the bulletin. There is a thing in the bulletin, the outline. Remember who God is to you in Christ. Number two, remember who you are in Christ and please God as you give yourself away as Christ. First, remember who God is. Well, first, He's God, He's the Creator sustainer of all things. Without him, everything would fly apart. Nothing would exist. He constantly sustains all of that exist. He knows all. He sees all. All time is in his hands. He's outside of time. He's self-existent. We all require something to exist. He requires nothing. He's perfect in character. He's perfect in justice. And to those in Christ, he is their holy father. Jesus used that in John chapter 17 told him holy father as holy father he combines things that we think are paradoxical or opposites holy as in perfect and set apart yet kind and loving a father who's tender to his children well in Christ he is your holy father second remember who you are in Christ you are the loved Daughter or son of the emperor, the king, the sovereign of all. <clears throat> you're loved more than you can ever imagine. You're not an orphan. You belong to God's family. You've been, bought, you've been brought into a loving relationship. And you're now ready to join the family's quest or calling. So what's this family's quest or calling? The best place I know to find um, our family is, in God's quest is John chapter seventeen, the Gospel of John chapter seventeen. It's an amazing chapter. If you want to know more about it, just talk to Will Doggett. There we go. To, there we get to see an inside peek in the Trinity. God the Son is talking to God the Father. It's pretty amazing. And what we see is that from eternity, the Holy Trinity has been giving to one another, and has been glorifying one another, has been loving one another. And with this, pleasing one another. And now we see God's perfect plan unfolding. He created humans to share in this perfect life of giving. Each member of the Trinity is so perfectly full, perfectly self-existent, that the one can give perfectly to to the other. And, And in Christ, the same is true of you. You can give according to your riches in Christ. According to your riches in Christ. There's no end to it. And as you give of yourself and fulfill your very reason for existence, you will experience ultimate contentment. Contentment that will go on for all time, not just time on earth, all eternity. Contentment that expresses itself as joy no matter what. A contented, deep inner peace. Contentment, as you know, the pressure is off and the quest is on. Now, if you're like me, you're going to respond and say, Well... Sure, Mike, I can remember who God is in Christ and and who I am in Christ and giving my life away in Christ for about five minutes in the morning um, after maybe some Bible reading or maybe about, oh, 30 seconds at night after I read some sort of devotional before I crash to sleep. But get me out in my busy day and the pressures of life and, well, it's all simply forgotten. What's the solution? What's the solution? Remember what Dave Miller last week said about the... Number one promise of salvation. This is always the test on how good of a teacher you are. Okay? I won't tell Dave. I don't see him today. All right. So what did he say? The Holy Spirit. See, there you go. He's a good teacher. Right. Yes, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, amongst other things, what what is one of the dwelling Holy Spirit's jobs? Well, in John 16, 14, he reminds you of Jesus. He reminds you of Jesus. So... Practical solution there is you go to the Holy, your Holy Father every day, multiple times a day, and you ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit will bring to mind all that you are in Christ Jesus. Well, that helps too, but I thought I might close with a couple examples. <clears throat> First one, um, you may have heard this story before, um, and it's about Horatio Spofford. Horatio Spofford. He's the author of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, You've probably heard it before. Um, when peace like a river attendeth my soul. So anyway, the story is this. He first it was a businessman. I think he was a lawyer. And he lost everything in a Chicago Fire. I think this was in the 1800s. Lost everything. Uh, you know, as far as materially goes. Well, then he sent his four wife and children, four, his, his wife and four children, we're going to have that sin in this country, but not yet. Okay, so he sent his one wife and four children, four daughters, to England on a boat. Well, en route, their ship sunk. His wife was pulled unconscious from the water. <clears throat> I've got three daughters, so this is, this, I can, can relate. <clears throat> she wired two words. Anybody know what those words were? Saved alone. Saved alone. All four girls were lost. And so Horatio traveled to England to get his wife. He penned the words of that song, that song is well with my soul. And let me read you some of the stanzas and just get a sense for what do you think he's focusing on? What do you think he's focusing on? Here's a couple stanzas. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate, and has shed his own blood for my soul. The next verse. O sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. So here he is in terrible grief, and what is his focus? What is his focus? It is Christ and his cross. Now, one preacher asked, I quote, what does this have to do with Spofford's four little girls? And this was his answer. Everything. And then he gave this following explanation. That think's quite insightful. Quote, when things go wrong, one of the ways you lose your peace is that you, you think, Maybe I'm being punished. No. Look at the cross. All the punishment fell on Jesus, on him. Another thing you may say is God doesn't care. No. Look at the cross. Look what he did for us. Look what he bore for us. The Bible gives you a God who says, I've lost a child too. But not involuntarily, voluntarily for your sake. So that's an example of Spofford. Now again, he was an old guy, so they could do that back then. We're not like that anymore. Maybe. Maybe we are in Christ. I have a homegrown example. One that's still in process. One that's a little bit raw. And it's my, <laughs> I'll try this. It's my wife, Cindy. She had to go upstairs with Luke. He's the only one allowed on the balcony. Now well, there's a few others up there now. All right. So, so my wife, Cindy. As many of you know, we have a 21-year-old with severe autism uh, named Luke. We call him, as I said earlier, a six-foot, two-inch toddler. Let's just say he's a handful. He graduated this spring and has been working, and we've been working on getting him into a day program ever since. So I think we're on our 11th week with him at home. To say the least, it's quite exhausting to try and keep him busy every single day. Cindy's borne the brunt of this wor- work. Uh, I know it has bothered her, and, and, we, and we have no idea when he'll um, actually have a program for him. And I can tell you that in the past, she would have gotten into a pretty bad way. Despairing, worrying, certainly not being content. And though we have good days and bad days, it's been different this time for Cindy. Let me share with you the objective thing that has shown me that is different this time. She's reading the book, The Practice of the Presence of God. She didn't look to herself. She didn't look to her circumstances. She looked to Jesus. And there you can find contentment. So as we close and before we go to communion, let's look to Jesus. Let me close this sermon the same way that Philippians closes, but also the same way that Philippians opens. From start to finish in Christ. From start to finish in Christ. Let's look to Jesus Christ who lost his contentment so we could have perfect contentment. Jesus' cry on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not a cry of contentment. It's the ultimate loss of contentment. He was losing his true source of contentment, his communion with his Father, they had had for all eternity. He was losing his true source of contentment, his communion with his Father so that we could have that communion. And now we too, in Christ, can find contentment as we hear our Holy Father say, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And with that ringing in our ears, we can move out and live as contented givers.